All right. If you have your worship guide or your Bible, the worship guide is page nine. If you have your Bible, it's we're going to be right at the beginning. Genesis one one. Our text for today is just one verse, the first verse in the Bible. And so uh, I'll tell you what, I'll read it. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? And then we'll pray. And then we'll uh, revel in what God has for us. All right. Uh, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. I pray that in this time you would help us to understand and apprehend the good news of Jesus that you have here for us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. All right, well, today we are starting a new sermon series that's going to carry us uh, most of the way through the summer. Uh, the series is, uh, I like to give titles to sermon series because it makes me feel important. So the title for the series is Beginnings uh, because we're looking at Genesis 1 through 3, the first three chapters of the Bible. And you might ask, why is it going to take all summer to go through Genesis 1 through 3? And the answer is because there's a lot there. And we're going to go slowly and we're going to uh, sort of like going on a hike uh, sometimes the shorter hikes, you can slow down a little bit and really take in what's around you. Whereas if you have to do a long hike in a short amount of time, you might miss a lot. So we're going to take a slow hike through Genesis 1 through 3. And I'm excited about it. Uh, Genesis 1 through 3 is uh, its the beginning. It's the beginning story. And it's not just one beginning. There's multiple beginnings here. There's the obvious ones, like it's the beginning of the Bible. Uh, there, it's the beginning of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the, the five books of Moses. It's the beginning of the book of Genesis. Like we, that's kind of like the obvious parts. But and, and then there's the stories that Genesis 1 tells that are stories of beginnings, beginnings of the world, beginning of the universe, created life, beginning of humanity. Uh, but also there's like redemptive gospel story the gospel story really starts here we see uh we see people created in god's image men and women who are loved and who are enjoying beautiful communion with god but then enter into the beginning of sin of struggle of shame and of death uh, we see here in these passages also the beginning of hope and of grace and of redemption All of these beginnings we find in Genesis 1 through 3, and that's why we're going to go uh, really slow. Genesis 1 through 3 also happens to be, uh, if you were like me and you grew up in, you know, evangelical church land, then you probably know that Genesis 1 through 3 is, uh, in some some ways, can be controversial. Uh, Lots of people get real passionate about their particular understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. And churches and even denominations have split over the years over different understandings. And people get in arguments and break up friendships and all kinds of things over how they're interpreting this. And it's like a trail. Sometimes trails have places that, uh, you know, are a little bit dangerous. 
So as we move through this, we're going to look at some things that might be hard. Um, but God intends this passage, in fact, the whole Bible, God intends to call us together and bring us to Jesus, not to divide us. So we're going to look at this in a way that I, I hope and pray that by the Lord's mercy and by his grace draws us together, helps us understand what who God is and what he's doing in the world. We want to look at this being gracious to one another. Um, there's going to be places here where, you know, there's when we study Genesis 1 through 3, we, we come across, first of all, it's God's word, and it's true, and it's trustworthy, and it's clear. But there's going to be places where maybe you agree with me, uh, and maybe there's places where you would disagree with me. And there's places here where we have things that there is some freedom in how we interpret it. There are some things here that there's a, there's a range, and so we're going to be gracious to each other as we do this. So Genesis 1 through 3, all summer, uh, this is a rich, rich uh, section of Scripture. It's a rich beginning. And that's appropriate because the Bible is a very rich story. Uh, so it's appropriate. When I think about great stories having great, rich beginnings, like Genesis 1 through 3 is the beginning for the Bible and everything we've talked about, uh, one of the first things that comes to my mind is the book uh, by Tolkien called The Silmarillion. Uh, have you heard of The Silmarillion? It's I'm sure most of us probably have. You know, if you haven't, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit uh, that became movies, if you didn't know there were books before there were movies, I am so sorry. Uh, but that same guy, he, he wrote a book called The Silmarillion where he goes into like the grand backstory of the whole Lord of the Rings Hobbit universe. And it's a long book. I think the first edition had 365 pages. So you can read the whole thing in a year. It's a long book, and I remember trying to read it uh, when I was in college and getting really bogged down. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, big words and made-up language kind of stuff, and there's a whole world history in the Silmarillion. There's lots of characters. It's hard to follow. Uh, some of it is, from what I've heard, really good. And the people who like it, who, like, really like it, but for most, like, Lord of the Rings people, it's like, yeah, that's interesting. But it's not really necessary to apprehend the Silmarillion to be a Lord of the Rings fan. In fact, Tolkien himself uh, had written you know, almost all of it in pieces, uh, but he, he, didn't even, he didn't even make sure that it was published before the end of his life. It was published posthumously and his son ended up putting it together so it's it's really cool uh it's certainly awesome it's worth your time if you're into it but it's not really necessary if you're a lord of the rings person and if you do want to get into it man there's a lot to get into so i tend to think about that kind of thing but genesis 1 through 3 is not that kind of beginning like the silmarillion there's lots of stuff going on and there's like cosmic things and there's creation story and there's all this stuff, but it's, it's not optional. It's essential. And it's not 365 epic long pages. It's three 
chapters. It happens in a few pages. So it's not quite like the Silmarillion. It's actually, if I wanted to find an analogy for the kind of beginning that we find in Genesis 1 through 3, uh, my mind goes to uh, just a, a, about a, a block and a half behind my house. There is a giant oak tree. It's a northern red oak. And some of you, uh, Sebastian, you might know that tree because it's right across from the, the, the place you do piano lessons. You know that giant oak tree? It's, uh, it's right in somebody's front yard. It's got to be, according to Wikipedia, which is infallible, uh, <laughs> not infallible. Uh, northern red oaks can be like 100 feet tall, and I guarantee this is 100 feet or taller. Uh, according to Wikipedia, they can live up to 400 years, and this tree has to be hundreds of years old. It's giant. If I went up to it, I have pretty long arms. I'm I'm, I'm a pretty full-sized person, and I can't even get my arms even a third of the way around the trunk. It envelops the whole front yard and even the whole house into the backyard. It's giant, and it's protected. There's a little plaque on it, so uh, it's protected by the I don't know, uh, Janine, you might know what they're called, the Tree Society or Forestry Department. Uh, so it's an epic tree. And people walk by. I walk by and stop and admire this tree. And I think about uh, the, the maybe hundreds of years it's been there, all the change of this tree, if this tree could tell its story, everything that it's seen. Think about all the birds and the insects and squirrels that make their home there and find life there. Even people make their home under the tree. There's a house there. This tree is epic. But this tree has a beginning. This tree has a beginning that contains the essential elements. Everything needed to build a tree is contained in this beginning, but the beginning is so often missed and misunderstood. As people walk by this giant tree and they admire it, most people, I would guess, don't even realize that they are walking over the beginning underneath their feet. Acorns. The giant grandeur of this tree, the beginning, the little tiny thing that contains everything that is needed for this epic life giving thing is found in an acorn. That's what Genesis 3, 1 through 3 is like. Every essential element of not just the story we find in Scripture, at least that, every essential element of the story in Scripture is found in these verses, in these three chapters. But every single essential element for all of life and flourishing and universal good and the epic reality of life before God in the world, all of everything that's needed for that is found in its basic foundational form in Genesis 1 through 3. And it's so easy to miss. It's so easy to walk over. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to take the trail slowly. We're going to stop and pick up the metaphorical acorn and examine it and dissect it, get it under a microscope, and that's our goal. Why? Not just because we want good information, but because we want to live in that tree. To take the metaphor to a, you know, even even broader. We, we want to get caught up. We want what God, the grandeur of the epic awesomeness that God has in the world. And the cool thing is, is we don't need to get lost in 
something more like the Silmarillion, uh, we can, we, this is accessible to us. It's right here. And the Holy Spirit, like, like a tree, like a last, last thing with the metaphor, then I'll move on, but this is going to be awesome. Uh, the, the acorn that has everything needed for the epic hundreds of years of life and the tree and all, all this stuff, that acorn, it, it just needs soil and sunlight and water and time. And the acorn, if you will, that we find in Genesis 1 through 3, we want, we want to plant it in our hearts, not just our brains, but in our hearts. We're going to give it time this summer, but uh, it's, we're going to give it hope for the water of the Holy Spirit, illuminating it, making it come to life in us. So that's what we're doing. That's where we're headed. Okay, but for today, I just want to draw out a few things in this first uh, sentence in order to get us moving down the path because we're going to have lots of time this summer to really get into it. So this first sentence, uh, the beginning of the beginnings, uh, what we have here in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I, I want to show you two of those foundational elements that we find here. Two of the properties of the acorn, right? Two foundation. That if you get these two things, you're good. If you miss these two things in the first verse, then you're you're already on the wrong path for the hike, if you will. Two things. So here's the first thing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. First foundational truth that we find here. Uh, let's put it in two words. Uh, God is god is in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth god is that could be kind of an awkward sentence god exists if we think about moses standing before the burning bush and he's telling and god you know tells him to go to egypt and liberate the people and moses says which god should i tell them that sent me what who should I tell them? They're not going to believe me. And God says, tell them that I am sent you. God is. He is the foundational, ultimate ground of being for all reality. And we see that here in this first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Speaking of Moses, uh, Moses is the person who first uh, put together the five books of the Bible. He's the he's the author inspired by the Holy Spirit. Surely we see clearly in the text some people came after him, and uh, we see you know places where maybe there were editors along the way, but also inspired by the Holy Spirit. But this finished product, trustworthy. Moses is our guy. We're, we're looking. So when and how did Moses write this? Well. If we read through the first five books of the Bible, we can see the place where Moses wrote uh, this account. He wrote it in between liberating the people from Egypt. After that, they came out of Egypt. They go into the desert, Sinai, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments. You saw the movie. And then they wandered for 40 years. Somewhere in the 40 years, Moses begins to pin these words under the guidance and supervision and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's, so after Egypt, but before Canaan, he writes this. The whole Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He, he writes it. And he writes it for the people of God, for the Israelites. Now, 
also it's for us, it's for everybody, but the, the immediate audience, the people who he had, you know, he goes away, he writes something, uh, God working with him and through him. It's Moses' handwriting, Moses' style. He's, he's writing this and then he takes it out and he, it's for the people. That's important. So when we read this, this is not just like, a, this is not just like, we're not the immediate. We gotta get in, try to get inside the in between Egypt and Canaan Israelite mind. That's important. What would have this? What would this sound like to them? What would it mean to them? That's that's the immediate audience. Now, when he says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth," he he is making uh, a, a pretty explicit, spiritual, theological, and uh, social and political even claims that these people would have heard. They had come out of Egypt, thoroughly schooled in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. In Egypt at the time, uh, the gods were the, um, uh, these were the gods of the people who were oppressing them. This was a domineering theology, if you will, and they came out from under it. But under that domineering, enslaving, slavery-justifying theology of the Egyptians. We see a polytheistic system with lots of gods, a, you know, a sun god and a moon god and an alligator god. We, we see all these, all these just like most places in the ancient world, polytheistic. We see a monistic system, monism, M-O-N-I-S-M. That means that, that everything is one Together, so the Egyptian gods were not independent from the creation. Uh, they're dependent on the world around them. And then we see a, uh, a kind of pantheism where the creation itself, the world itself is, is part of God or one with God. So for example, the Egyptians among the many pantheon of gods had a sun god who doesn't, ex- who is dependent on the earth and dependent on the moon and part of a system and is also the sun. And under Egyptian theology, the the world around them became the context in which the oppressive gods from the oppressing people, they, they, they look and they see the story of the oppressive gods. You see it? And they're heading to Canaan, which is not very different. We see a pantheon, a polyism. We see monism. The gods are dependent on the need the people. They need the earth because they're, they're all one together. And we see this uh, pantheism where uh, everything is sort of part of God. Now, in this context, in this world, coming out of slavery, heading into war where there's this universal consensus about polytheism, monism, and pantheism, Moses writes for the people uh, this radically controversial statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. No polytheism, no pantheon here. One God, singular. No monism here. This God is not dependent he, he was before, and he didn't he, he didn't just fashion the heavens and the earth out of something that was some like primeval chaos. No, he created them. That word for create, it's here. It's in this verse. It's the Hebrew word bara, 
B-A-R-A, bara. And we only find it in Scripture in reference to something that God does. This is not like I go home and I, and I create like a, you know, like a sandwich. No, no, no. This is like something out of nothing. The theological word for that is creation ex nihilo. And we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more next week. But the idea here is this God is not, he's not, well, the Egyptian gods created the world out of their own relationships, love affairs and wars and all that, and the byproduct of all that. The, the residue of their own life became like the, the matter of the world. That's not what this is. This God is not dependent. And, and we see there's no pantheism here. He's not the sun. He's not the moon. He's not the alligator. He is other. He is something else. And this is a controversial cosmology that Moses is delivering to the people. This is the I am who I am God's story. That would have said something to them That would have spoken liberation to them. There, Psalm, I believe it's Psalm, top of my head, I think it's Psalm 61, where, where David writes, and it's a psalm of this desperate prayer. He says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. He says, I need a refuge. I need a rock that is bigger than me. And the Egyptian gods and their system as oppressive as it was, offer no refuge for the people. The Canaanite pantheon, where they were going, offer no refuge because those gods are not bigger than the people themselves. They might be more powerful, they might be big and scary or whatever, but they're not other. So Moses delivers to the people this foundational truth that they need to understand if they want to understand the redemption they're experiencing. And we need to understand, if we, not just if we want to understand the Bible, but if we want to understand the redemption that's offered to us in Christ, we need to understand that God is. He's not dependent on us. He's not one with the creation. He is completely other. He doesn't need us. If we experience him or we have fellowship with him, it's because he himself initiates it and he opens the door. He's not a God of our own making. He is. The word for God here is Elohim. And while the the sentence as a whole shows that it's supposed to be understood as singular, God, one, the, the word itself here in this passage is mysteriously plural. And the Moses does that in order to help us to understand that Elohim, this God, is majestic. Sort of how the queen in in the UK is, you know, it's, she refers to herself as the royal we. You know, the it's not I, it's we. Well, that's what's going on here. But it's also a reminder that the the singularity of God is not just separate from the polytheistic world around. It's also separate from the other monotheistic systems. This one God who is, is a God of Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, equal in substance, power, and glory, but one God forever and ever. He's the God who is. 
This reminds me of how it talks about in the book of Hebrews. Well, let me just read it. How are we supposed to approach? How are we supposed to know? How are we supposed to interact with this completely other God? Well, in the book of Hebrews, it says that in the past, God spoke to our forefathers. That would be the old people of Israel through the prophets like Moses. And and many times in various ways. But in these days, he's spoken to us by his son, who he's appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. Folks, this, the, the, the completely otherness, glory, giant, mysterious oak tree, beautiful, divine God is made himself accessible to us in Christ. And as the, the Jews would have heard this word of liberation from their prophet in, in, in the wilderness, we hear this word of salvation and liberation uh, from Jesus himself. So that kind of leads to the second big truth. Two big truths right here at the beginning. God is, and the second one, God does. God is, God does. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's uh, really important. That whole bara thing, the divine action created out of nothing. Now, heavens and the earth. Uh, when, you know, my, you know, 21st century, you know, 38-year-old brain listens to that, I think heavens, like, oh, that's where God is, and the angels and all that stuff, and the earth, that's our planet. In the beginning, God created the supernatural world and then our planet, physical world. Um, that's not how the Israelites would have heard that phrase uh, from Moses. Heavens and the earth, in the Hebrew Bible, is what's called a merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. It's an idiomatic phrase. It's something people say that means more than its literal parts. Heavens and the earth. Now, earth in Hebrew, um, we'll get into this a well, probably starting next week, uh, doesn't mean earth like planet earth. In fact, in biblical Hebrew, there's no word for planet earth. Earth means the ground, the land. There's the earth and then there's the seas. It's like, it's the, the, the ground. So the heavens and the earth, and the heavens, uh, yes, that can mean like the supernatural world, uh, but more it means like the sky. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the, the land, the ground, and the sky. And together, when those appear together, they mean something bigger. It's, it would be like in English when we say from top to bottom or from east to west. It's an idiom that means everything, uh, the whole universe, everything that is. So in the beginning, God created bara, only the thing that God does, out of nothing, everything that is. That's really important. This this ultimate ground of being, self-existent, completely other God, is not distant. He's not Thomas Jefferson's divine clockmaker who wound up the universe and stepped out uh, to just let it run its course. He's, he's not that. Uh, he, he is not... Um, He's not what the Israelites maybe thought that he was since they had come out of 400 years of slavery, thinking that they didn't, he didn't hear their cries. No, he is acting, and he is powerful, 
And he is upholding all that there is by the word of his power. What this would have said to the early hearers of Moses' message is as they're stuck in no man's land in between Egypt and Canaan, they would have known that even though they might feel insecure, even though they might feel in transit, even though they might feel like the world is against them, the, the God who is is with them and is all-powerful and is doing stuff on their behalf. Not like you can like do, uh, you know, go up to the high place and do a ritual and, and get, you know, bail to maybe give you a child because you talked them into it. The Canaanite system. No. This God from the beginning is upholding and pulling together everything that is. There is no shortage of power here. There is no shortage of ability. And folks, as Christians in our time, we need to be reminded about this. We live, especially here in Oregon and in uh, southwest Washington, we live at a time where uh, political polarization is a big deal. There's lots of political polarizing where we live. We live in a time where uh, we're sort of right at the beginning sociologically of a time where as uh, Christians with uh, a theology where we we really take the Bible really seriously, we're we're sort of now in the cultural minority. And for many of us, it wasn't like that before or our parents didn't experience that or grandparents. We don't have the stories culturally to deal with not being the dominant group. And sometimes it can feel like, oh, here we are in our little church in this just big, bad city, and everybody's against us. Well, you know what? First of all, I don't, we shouldn't even be thinking like that. Because uh, it's not about us. It's about God. And second of all, we, we don't need to think like that because the God who is with us is all-powerful. <laughs> He's not surprised by anything, and he's upholding all of it. He's totally in control. And the confidence that the Israelites would have gained in their sojourning, in their insecurity, from knowing that the ground beneath their feet, all the way up to the sky above them, everything was fashioned intentionally out of nothing for them by the God who is. So you can't understand the Bible, you can't understand Christianity, you can't understand real life without understanding that God is, period. And God does, period. Now, these two truths form the acorn for, well, these form the tiny acorn that forms the big acorn, Genesis 1 through 3, for the whole Bible. And as this word, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, was delivered to the Israelites in the desert to give them confidence and give them hope, to help them really live into the redemption that God had offered them, the same word is offered to us. And we're reminded when we look at this that the, the God who is became one of us in Jesus Christ. And the God who does secured our salvation in Christ. 
Going back to the passage that we read earlier about Jesus being God's, the way God speaks to us, it says that Jesus, the Son, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Folks, this means that everything that God is and everything that God's doing is offered to us in Christ. We can take a hold of it. We can apprehend it. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we are doing so much more. Well, it's, it's almost a sham to say that we're doing something religious. We're doing something ultimate. Do you see it? So, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This reminds me, and I'll close with this. It reminds me of where it says in Romans about Jesus. It says, from him and through him and to him are all things. Let's praise his name. Let's pray.